because all this history of slavery and Afro-Brazilian populations wasn't taught to Brazilians. There was no, no Afro-Brazilian history being taught in the Brazilian school system? No, until, until the law that it started in 2003. From the History Watch Project, this is the History Watch podcast series, bringing you up close and personal with history in the real world, with some help from people who know what they're talking about. I am Audra Dutte, and in today's episode of the History Watch podcast series, you'll hear me in conversation with Dr. Ana Lucia Araujo, who is a professor of history at Howard University in Washington, D.C. I was lucky enough to meet her while we were both in Paris in 2019, and we both held posts as invited professors. While in Paris, Dr. Araujo was affiliated with l'Institut d'Histoire du Temps Présent at the Université Paris 8. Dr. Araujo is an accomplished historian. Her work is focused on history, memory, and the legacies of slavery and the Atlantic slave trade from a global perspective. Today's podcast puts a spotlight on the politics of race and the practice of racism in Brazil. Although this conversation took place in 2019, in the current context of global protests against anti-black racism, it seems particularly pertinent right now. I'll include a link to Professor Araujo's website for those of you that are interested in learning more about her work. And now, tune into today's podcast, History, Racism and Anti-Black Violence in Brazil. There, I was thinking about three things in preparation for the interview. And there are three unrelated things, but they seem to point to a certain issue that Brazil is confronting right now. One, about the tragic case of the destruction of the National Museum. Mm-hmm. Was that September? September 2018. The second has to do with the murder of um, Franco, Marielle Franco, mm-hmm. who was a black city councillor um, for Rio. Uh, which was, I think, March 2018, mm-hmm. and then, of course, the election of the uh, president, mm-hmm. Bolsonaro. Um, yes, I think that, um, of course, that we could look at these three events as things that are unrelated. Uh, the first is a murder, a murder that occurred uh, in Rio de Janeiro, which was the largest slave port um, in the Americas, indeed. Uh, then most uh, enslaved Africans who enter Brazil, they enter, enter to that area of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, this woman, Marielle Franco, she was a, a black activist, LGBT, who was fighting against the militias that are these unofficial groups that associated with politicians, with uh, the military police, and who have been conducting them for very long extrajudicial killings. First, it, it is not an accident. She was murdered. Someone paid for that. Someone ordered uh, that murder uh, because what she was doing was going against their their interests. Now, this occurs in Janeiro, a city also that has a large black population still today. And uh, over the last 15 years, we can say that despite this great invisibility, because I think that is important for us Brazilians, perhaps there are things that you are taking for granted these days that everybody knows 
knows and people they don't know because Brazil has been closed for a for very long. Also, because all this history of slavery and Afro-Brazilian populations wasn't taught to Brazilians uh, and even to Afro-Brazilians, then either in school or in the public space, you don't have these markers that so emphasize. The, there was no history of Afro, no Afro-Brazilian history being taught in the Brazilian school system. No, until I uh, until the law that is started in 2003. Then, just to give you an idea, even up in a country like Canada, we have Africanist historians who have been doing African history since the 1960s. Brazil, the discipline of African history, did not exist, was not taught for people who took history courses until uh, the late 1990s. It, it, it didn't exist. Then all the Africanists that you know, that, uh, that are Brazilians, they were trained elsewhere. They were trained in Mexico. They were trained uh, after in the United States, in Canada, or sometimes in Europe. Which means that it's with the law of 2013 that this may, is made mandatory. Then we learned about the French Revolution. We learned about um, European colonization. Uh, but in all disciplines, Africa is something that is uh, that has been absent. So, okay, if Brazil's been independent since 1822, mm -hmm. explain this for me, because, you know, when you think about Fran uh, Guadalupe and Martinique, their teaching of Caribbean history, I'm sorry, their syllabi, their mm -hmm. curriculum is determined by France. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the syllabi and you don't see a lot about the slave experience and that kind of thing, it's unsurprising. Somebody here in France, where we are right now, has made decisions, the Ministry mm -hmm. of Education, about what should be taught in Guadeloupe and Martinique, the mm -hmm. departments of France, fine. How can Brazil, that has been independent since 1822, with such a large black population, mm -hmm. not teach Afro-Brazilian Afro history? This is something that we see in other Latin American countries that, of course, have a smaller populations of African descent, but we had a process in Brazil that is uh, in the rest of Latin America known as mestizaje in Brazil as racial democracy, which is essentially uh, an ideology that uh, emerges from the, the assumption, the idea that we have uh, different groups in Brazil, such as the Europeans, the Portuguese origin, the indigenous populations, and we have people of African descent, but that all these groups, they have been living harmoniously and that we do not have racism. Then there was never legal segregation in Brazil. Then this leads to the idea that racism is not there. But indeed, black population in Brazil has been prevented from having access to private schools and to have access to the universities. Then the universities in Brazil is still today. They do not have, for example, the number of black uh, professors is, is minimal. It started happening recently because then uh, it was dominated by, by, by a white elite. And even say white elite in Brazil, it doesn't work because, it, yes, the elite is white. There is no black elite in Brazil. Then this is a system that has... <laughs> there is a lot of Brazilian politicians that start saying, oh, the white elites, the white elites. Yes, there is only white elites elites because there is no uh, black elites. And this is interesting because the, of the discussion that we had the other day about uh, conservative and left and uh, right. In two points, left and right have been agreeing for very long, that is the exclusion of uh, black populations. And you can see this, the composition of the Congress, for mm -hmm. example. Brazil never had a black president. Mm -hmm.
The demography then we have 200 million people, about 200 million, it's a little bit more now, mm -hmm. and a little bit more than 50% identify either as black or brown, because the census in Brazil, the last one that we have is 2010, the census does not ask you your uh, ancestry. It asks your color. The categories in the census are still the categories that we had during the colonial period, which are white, black, brown, indigenous, or yellow. Yellow being Asian descent. Then if you add up those who identify as black and those who identify as brown, and now you have to consider there are some people who identify as brown but also have indigenous ancestry, then this makes more than 50% of the Brazilian population, black and brown. Uh, then more than 50% of the population, then about 51, uh, is of Africans. So conceivably then, so in one family, somebody could identify as white and somebody could identify as brown, and so all depending on skin color, is that how people identify? Yes, it, it, it can happen that. Okay. Yeah. And the, the point is then that colorism, let's say, is a main issue. And uh, class is also important. There is now a growing consciousness that even those who have lighter skin or who, are, uh, who have been identified in the past as brown, who are now identifying uh, as black. There are many people that perhaps in the past, because of their social position and because they could uh, navigate uh, in the system and perhaps they have lighter skin, perhaps these people who are identified as white, now perhaps they are rather identifying as brown. Then we see a growth of the, the black and brown population in Brazil over the last years, not necessarily because of um, the birth rate, yeah. but because people are now identifying. They are no longer uh, ashamed of uh, saying that they are black or, or that they are brown. So there's a changing race consciousness? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. maybe in two or three points, explain, as you understand it, the difference between how race is perceived in Brazil in comparison to the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, there are many elements that are similar, but um, in the United States, because of the laws that segregated uh, people of African descent, uh, African-Americans, they did not have a choice then declare their ancestry then we have this idea of the, the black um, the, uh, one drop rule, that that same one drop rule that makes you an African American than a black person in the United States. In Brazil, if you have one drop of white, you can pass uh, as white. I imagine that has, that's linked to skin color too, right? So if you, yes. yeah. So you, skin color, other physical features, for example, hair in Brazil is something that is very, very important. Hair texture. Exactly, hair texture. This is also changing as part of this consciousness. Then uh, these elements are important. But can I ask a question? This is pure speculation. Is that like more of a middle class obsession? Like in, among in the favelas and that kind of thing? Did they not have, was there not an undercurrent? Did they not have a sense of Afro pride? I mean, we're talking about a kind of educated middle class group that 
so linked light light skin and whiteness to the way I would put that way is that uh, this consciousness has been there even among a certain middle class but of course among the, the great majority who are living then perhaps in worse conditions but in order to have social mobility there was a history uh, for example of trying to dress in a way that you don't look black or to adapt uh, for example straightening your hair I would say that this lasted perhaps until the, the 1970s it was that way mm -hmm. and already by that time already by the 1970s is the moment when you see this movement in the United States black is beautiful and so on that you see this emerging in Brazil but this consciousness has been there uh, you know, in some places more than others. For example, uh, there is also uh, association with religion, Afro-Brazilian religions. Mm -hmm. And you cannot say that this population, that they for themselves decide uh, to whiten themselves. But the small elite that decides to ignore that and mm -hmm. uh, to not make them visible. What you have been seeing recently is real pride of that. For example, if you would go to Brazil uh, 20 years ago to a, a pharmacy, a, a supermarket, you would not find any products for black hair, uh, any makeup for black uh, skin. Then this is what we see now that completely changed. I think that with all this issue of globalization between quotation marks, that leads these groups to, to become really much more proud. So there's a greater public space for ideas about blackness now. Exactly. Mm -hmm. in, some, in some places there was, uh, in the past there used to be, but it was confined to some periods, for example, period of carnival. Mm -hmm. We would see much more on television than black women and uh, the celebration of blackness, but it was circumscribed to the period of carnival. Uh, in some states, however, and in some communities, then the favela has been black uh, at, at its origins, we can say. Mm -hmm. uh, some other communities, for example, associated to, to religious, mm -hmm. uh, to Afro-Brazilian religions as well. Mm -hmm. But beyond these spaces, it is not something that we would see, for example, on television or any or. Um, in the, the political spheres as well, spheres of power, for example, you are not going to see uh, black lawyers, uh, black uh, doctors. This is what has been changing over the, the last 20 years. Okay, so just to be clear, there's no, there was no official law, like unlike the US, mm -hmm. there was no official laws in Brazil preventing blacks from entering professions or there was no official segregation. In theory, they could do anything a white person could do. Mm -hmm. However, it, it was there was institutionalized racism that exactly. prevented them from exactly. having any mobility. Exactly, exactly. And there has been, for example, Brazilian Constitution of 1988 established that racism is a crime. And then we have additional laws that establish the sentences. Then there are several things. For example, it has never been in the law. But, for example, many of black women since the abolition of slavery have been working as uh, domestic servants. If you go to any building uh, that was built until the 1990s, usually they have domestic headquarters that is near the kitchen. You have a small uh, bedroom, a small bathroom. Then these women would live in, in the house. 
there were service elevators. In Brazil, it means that if you are a black woman, you work as a domestic servant, you are supposed to take that. Then there are several spaces. There is segregation in practicing. Then it's, it's much more complex in terms of, because you don't have the law, you don't have uh, the restriction, but in practice, it is there. Then how do you fight that? This has been the challenge. Of it's a moving target, actually. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's an unwritten law. Yeah. And all this has been much questioned um, since the period of when Brazil became a... Then since the 1960s, the, after we had the dictatorship, then when the dictatorship ended in 1985, uh, this, the black movement really uh, surfaced at that point and was blooming in terms of uh, policies led by the government since 2002 and perhaps in a lesser scale since the 1990s. So the racism was really rampant during the period of the dictatorship? Yes, you can say that it was was there. And uh, even talking about that, of course, it was something that was uh, Mm -hmm. was impossible to question the idea that Brazil, that uh, this ideology of uh, racial democracy Mm -hmm. was something that uh, couldn't happen. But already by the end of the dictatorship, we see this movement surfacing uh, then in terms of uh, culture, in terms of uh, political movements as well. And um, lately, it, it was really blooming mm-hmm. uh, then with policies that were clearly targeting uh, populations of African descent in order to give them access to the universities and to all these spheres. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we see the rise of the far right everywhere. It's everywhere right now. This is like the whole world has gone bloody mad. So we see the rise of the far right, but we see them elected <laughs> in Brazil. So explain how this is possible in a society like Brazil. Explain how this is possible, given the demographics. And also, I mean, I was looking at some photographs, and it's not fair. This is poor evidence, but it's, I shouldn't judge based on some photographs I saw in various newspaper articles. But it's a lot of white Brazilians that are celebrating in the streets and stuff. But did the current president, did he transcend race? Do you know what I mean? Because he's racist, he's homophobic, he's a whole long list of, you can make the, the list of critiques. Was he elected by class? Was he elected by race? When I look at the photographs, it's a lot of really white Brazilians that are jumping and celebrating. And Yes, we can say that uh, he's white. He has been promoting ideas that are white supremacist ideas. He is racist. Then he says things that are uh, racist. He clearly attacked policies that have been implemented over the the last years, including the affirmative action. But he could not be elected only by this white elite. The polls, the, the studies that have been done up to here, show that he got votes among all different groups. For example, the richest region of Brazil is in the southeast. Then in that region, of course, he was in, in the south. He got, the largest population is there. Then there he got uh, a lot of votes. Then he didn't get votes or uh, as much votes in the northeast, that is the blackest uh, region uh, in Brazil. Now, we know that in Rio de Janeiro favelas, he got votes and he got a lot of votes. 
and there was a, a shift from low and low middle class groups that in the past have uh, benefit from the, the policies that took them from, from pro poverty. Uh, as we had an economic crisis over the, uh, that has been there since uh, 2015, to, to, already since 2013, that is when the, the economy started declining, these poor groups, let's say, high levels of unemployment and so on, they shift to the right as well. Then this is something that we cannot uh, we cannot ignore. There is clear evidence that these groups they they moved towards him because he seems to be a strong figure because of the stupid things that he says, then <laughs> uh, because of the way that he's very direct. Uh, he's a populist as well. Then in the sense that he cannot elaborate very sophisticated statements, he is very basic. Then he has this direct contact with the population. He used uh, he mobilized people essentially through WhatsApp and Facebook. He never participated of any debates. Then we don't know what he thinks. Uh, then he would go to Facebook and do these videos, Facebook Live. Uh, but now, already last week, he, he dropped 15% in terms of his support. And apparently, the, the group where he lost uh, uh, the most is among the low-income population. Mm -hmm. In many ways, then, population, population of color, mm -hmm. black and brown population in Brazil. that uh, is considered officially as indigenous, less than 1% of the population. Less than 1%? Less than 1%. Is that because they were decimated or they've been intermarrying or what's going on? Or having, you know, cross-racial relations or...? Yes, and uh, these two elements, then uh, there is... When they start leaving the communities and going to the cities and they lose their, their status, then they have been in this process of assimilating, let's say that way. But there is a genocide of these populations that is still going on in Brazil. When you say genocide, do you mean a cultural genocide or do you mean an actual? An actual genocide. Then uh, many of these populations, they are living today uh, in the region of, uh, there is the, the region covered uh, by the Amazonia forest that is huge. Mm. This is about half of the Brazilian territory, 40% perhaps. And they have their lands, then they have their official lands that have been established already during the, the 1960s and so on. And their official lands is in that area. We have even in Brazil indigenous populations that never had any contact with the white population. That the problem is that there is an expansion of agriculture, especially to produce soybeans, and they target, of course, these lands. And so I think when Bolsonaro got into power, he made some claims about wanting to take lands away from them. He already made changes in terms of which institutions take care of this issue, uh, not only for indigenous, but also regarding the black population who are fighting to get the titles of their lands, that uh, this is a right established with the Constitution of 1988. He is very clear that we need to expand uh, these indigenous populations. They have uh, too much land. And we need this land to do something useful between quotation marks. It is in this process that they are being killed. Now, 
this didn't start with Bolsonaro. There has been the previous government also policies that have been very controversial. For example, the construction of a dam uh, in the, the one of the the affluents of the, the of the Amazon River that displaced the indigenous population. Even near the museum, the National Museum, there were there were communities that have been displaced during that process of having the World Cup and the... Oh, I read about that. That was um, remarkable, actually. It was yeah. remarkably sad. I remember reading about that. Yeah. And, and then there is a... I don't follow this very closely, but in terms of numbers, that has been uh, uh, this killing, uh, this constant killing, the same way that we have uh, in the urban areas of uh, young black men. In the reduced numbers of indigenous people in Brazil is one, actual genocide, mm -hmm. and two, you're saying if they leave the reserves, they lose their status. So basically, they can, the numbers are also diminishing just administratively. Mm -hmm. They just, one day you're indigenous, the next day you're not, and mm -hmm. then that's one less person. Yes. Right? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the black population, these killings, are they, is it the police, who's, is it the army, who's, who's mm -hmm. executing these, these? It's the police. Essentially, there are two groups that are then, uh, what you call the military police is the patrolling police. Mm -hmm. In the cities, they are controlled by the states, then each state has its own, uh, its own patrolling police. Mm -hmm. And these are called military police, but they are not. Uh, they are not the military. Then, in Rio de Janeiro, we had three groups who killed. Then, usually, everywhere is two groups: uh, military police first. Second, uh, in some states where we have these militias, there are paramilitary groups that are uh, unofficial groups that are killing black individuals. This is a second. And in Rio de Janeiro, because there was a military intervention uh, then a few months ago in order to control the situation that was out of control in terms of security and uh, gang membership and so on, and the, the issue of uh, gang with, uh, gangs related to, to drug trafficking, they, the, the governor at the time requested the intervention of the, the army, the real army. The army also killed. Then in Rio de Janeiro, we have three groups, the militias, the army, and the military police. Now the intervention in Rio de Janeiro is, is, is fading, is ending, then essentially the military police. Wow. That's incredible. So this is a part of the institutionalized, it's more than racism, institutionalized murder. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, these, these military police officers had the, the license to, mm -hmm. to kill. They have very low salaries. Uh, there is a lot of corruption oh, in the military course, police. Yeah. Then, uh, yeah, they are they are not trained properly. Then, instead of preventing crime, they kill people Contribute. Uh, exactly yeah. to who are suspects. of the laws, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the legislation, it's going to be hard to change this. And in Brazil, we don't change legislation Overnight. like this. Mm -hmm. it, it's very hard to approve legislation. It's very uh, hard to, to undo it. The problem is going to be in the field, like people being killed, people being threatened, people being intimidated. 
the backlash, for example, in the classroom, the Ministry of Education, like uh, that we should stop talking about gender, that we should stop about talking uh, LGBT, that we should stop talking about race. That's happening in Brazil. Yeah, yeah. And this is the big danger. Now, we have groups that are very well organized. We have people who have been elected. Uh, I think that people, they have a, a presence in the, the public sphere. That there is resistance. And I don't think that uh, the political, how can I say, strength of uh, Bolsonaro and people who are among him, they are not so strong in, in order to, to be able to. He has other battles to, to win, and uh, this is one that uh, he has been mobilizing his bases around these issues, but I think that it's not going to be possible to do this fast. Mm -hmm. Groups who got their rights, who got land, or Afro-Brazilians who got access to the university, uh, who are having access to jobs, who are having access to a political visibility. Nobody's going to accept to give up those rights. Those rights. And people will not move. And this is what I would say that where the, the hope resides, because I think that it's, it's a constant battle. And also it's a lesson uh, for us who are then who are historians and who are working on memory as well, that these battles, they are never won. Then these are issues that are on constant move. Mm -hmm. And perhaps one of the mistakes of uh, the group who has been there before Bolsonaro, not Temer, but during Dilma Workers' Party, was to think that now we achieved this and this is going to be there forever. Because this was pretty new. The long history of Brazil is a history of uh, genocide, colonization, racism. Then, how can I say, it, it, you don't solve this in, in 15 years. <laughs> it's a very long process, and this, the, 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 the current context is just telling us that this is the case. So it's an ongoing battle then? Yeah, and I think everywhere. I mean, who would have thought that the far right, and this is globally, that yes, the far right would be on the rise uh, in all corners of the world. So yes. it seems, you know, it's... Yeah, the, the United States uh, is, is a very different context, but it was similar. The Obama president for 80 years, who would believe that uh, 80 years later we would have white supremacists hailing as they are doing with torches and... Um, but you know what? It's fascinating for me the way in which, if we, if we talk about memory, the way in which people use symbols for their these symbols get new meanings with each generation you know so that we actually have people in the United States um, wearing Nazi symbols or tattooing themselves with the you know with Nazi symbolism it's this fluidity of memory mm -hmm. that I find fascinating yeah it's fascinating there were rules that were not majority, but who have been there. Then underneath the, the, the mainstream, who have been there for very long. But I don't think that anyway, that these groups are the majority. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. They're, they're, they're a minority, but they have a space now that they didn't yes. have, which is a, a fascinating thing, yeah. you know? It just seems, and it seems amplified. Yes, so. it is, it is. And I think that the fact that... Uh, it, it's something that you cannot have in countries like France or uh, even uh, in Germany. For example, 
uh, to go in the public space with um, these uh, swastikas and things like this that we see in the United States because of this legislation that calls this freedom of uh, speech. Of freedom. speech. <laughs> like, we cannot have this happening in Europe, I would say, in general, but especially here in France, I would see this, uh, this would be hard. But in the US, it's possible. In Brazil, there is there are limitations as well. For example, racism is a crime, meaning that uh, if you insult someone and this is a, an act of racism, you are uh, you can be sentenced to prison. I'm not saying that anybody stays in prison for less than 24 hours <laughs> for this, but it's possible. But it's possible. Whereas uh, in countries like the United States, uh, it's more complicated than that. That brings us to the end of this episode of the History Watch podcast, History, Racism and Anti-Black Violence, in which I was in conversation with Dr. Ana Lucia Araujo of Howard University. For links and references related to today's podcast, please see the podcast notes. The History Watch podcast series is coordinated by Dr. Audra Dipti. To learn more about the History Watch Project, visit us at historywatchproject.com. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye. <laughs>